This is exactly right. My name is Erwe Conan. I'm former police officer. I was working in Paris and was in charge of the highest robberies of jewelries in Paris. So I've been in the police during 25 years. Captain Hervé Conan was the lead investigator on multiple robberies by the Pink Panthers in Paris, starting in the early 2000s. He saw firsthand how a group of Serbian jewel thieves turned themselves into a global brand. The name of Pink Panthers was given after the robbery in London, after the Graf robberies. Back in 2003, two men in expensive suits entered a Graf jewelry store on New Bond Street in London's West End. One of them was wearing a conspicuous black wig that a security guard later said looked like a cat. It was the middle of the day and this luxury shopping district was full of people. Suddenly, one of the men pulled out a gun, the other a hammer. Three minutes later, the pair walked out into the busy London streets with over $30 million worth of diamonds. Graf sells some of the world's most exclusive, expensive jewelry and high-end watches. This was the first time the Pink Panthers had targeted them, but the Panthers would develop a taste for what Graf offers and would return to them when they struck the Wafi Mall in Dubai. Now, most of the jewels from this first Graf heist were never recovered, but at least one was. The name of Pink Panthers was given by the newspapers in England because uh, our colleagues in London, they found uh, diamonds in a pot of cream. Is it a pot of uh, cream? It was a jar of face cream and inside police found a blue diamond ring worth $750,000. The thieves had left it behind when they made their escape from London. Okay, they found a diamonds and uh, it was a reference to a movie, Pink Panther. And uh, so uh, the name was given uh, to this gang at this time. It was something right out of the classic Peter Sellers movie, Return of the Pink Panther. The name given by the British press stuck. Media across Europe just loved it. But this was not the first time the newly branded Pink Panthers had struck. In fact, the Pink Panthers was simply a new label for a vast underworld network that was already running like a well-oiled machine. And Vladan Lazarevich, Bojana Mitic and Milan Lipoya were just three of its latest recruits. I'm Natalia Antalava. I'm a journalist based in Eastern Europe and I'm going to take you into the world of Serbia's most brazen jewel thieves. The most daring and successful diamond thieves in the world. 30 to 40 seconds, they're in, they're out. They've stolen half a billion dollars worth of valuables. Two well-dressed men strolled into an exclusive jewelry store in London and walked out with $66 million in jewels. They're called the Pink Panthers. They're a loosely connected crew of overeducated, underemployed, ambitious young people who rose from the ashes of the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s to commit elaborate smash-and-grab heists all across the globe, often in broad daylight. 
This is Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story. Episode 2, Thick as Thieves. Last time, we heard how three young Serbian thieves had traveled to Dubai from Eastern Europe in 2007. The mastermind, Mladen Lazarevic, the team's logistics lead and Mladen's girlfriend, Bojana Mitic, and their friend, Milan Lepoja. The team had spent weeks in preparation for a robbery that would make them all rich and famous. They drove two Audi sedans through the doors of the Wafi Mall and straight into the Graf jewelry store, making off with over $3 million worth of jewels. All in under a minute. The heist was caught on cell phone video and posted online. Within days, the Pink Panthers were a worldwide sensation. But Captain Conan of the Paris police was well acquainted with the Panthers long before Dubai, even before the British papers gave them a name. In 2001, they had pulled off an ingenious robbery at one of the most high-end jewelers in Paris, called Boucheron. They have attacked uh, Boucheron, the jewelry on the Place Vendôme, and they attacked the main windows, in fact. It was in the morning very early. The shop was still closed, okay? But the jewelries were still visible from outside. Millions of dollars of jewels sitting on display right behind the front window of a closed shop, it seems like it's inviting trouble. But the store had a very special security system. It is a specific glasses, very sophisticated. It resists when you hit the window with a hammer or axes. But if the temperature is very high, the glass, you can break it. So they burn, in fact, the windows with a, I don't know the name in English, it is a, with a big flame. It was a blowtorch. The thieves knew what they were up against and they had planned accordingly. They hid the glass until it's brittle, neutralizing the security feature. So they break the window like this and they have taken a necklace in the jewelry. It was maybe three millions. It's very, very smart. It was like in a movie. It was just like a movie. It's almost like that was their intention. I always thought that the most important part of their exploits was this part of them being media savvy. They have these guys out there interested in their image, you know, interested in the way how public perceives them. Dmitry Voinov is a Serbian film scholar who wrote a film about the Pink Panthers. For him, the Panthers' style was clearly inspired by popular movies and television. In a very same way, John Dillinger appeared after a very long stint in prison. He went to cinema in order to learn to speak again. So he used to mimic dialogue from films. And I think that Pink Panthers are a lot like Dillinger. You know, their actions resemble a lot of films. Using masks or some kind of disguise, that's from Mission Impossible. You know, that's a very curious thing, you know, about how media and, and, and movies inform this. And journalists have made that connection as well. We've seen so many fun heist films. We love a complicated crime that is well executed. And apparently they do too. My name is Eric Pape. I'm a longtime investigative reporter. I've worked extensively for Newsweek magazine, The Daily Beast, and I've written for a wide array of publications around the world. Eric Pape was based in Paris, where he first started covering the Panthers in the late 2000s. I started writing about the Pink Panthers almost 15 years ago. 
they very much capture something in the popular imagination. Pape reported on a number of the Pink Panthers' heists, and some of the details struck him as especially creative. Police, this may be one of my favorites, talked about the four busty ladies who entered the Henry Winston jewelry shop in Paris, threw out a magnum and a grenade, and then they escaped with about $100 million in jewelry. Police said that they believed it was Pink Panthers in drag. For the Panthers, planning a heist is similar to making a movie. Everyone has their part, their costume, they spend weeks rehearsing, and on the day of the robbery, it's time to perform. Eric Pape recalls another Panther heist, where distracting wardrobe choices play the key role. I believe it was in 2005, and it was in uh, Saint-Tropez on the Mediterranean coast. You would think they might want to dress in the most mundane clothes imaginable to blend in. But instead, they dressed in these loud, very tacky tourist T-shirts. And they went into a store right near the waterfront. Streets were thronged with tourists. That's something that they often do. They often use masses of people or traffic as a cover because, A, you can try to blend in afterwards. You can change out of that flashy T-shirt, for example. But also the traffic and all the people make it hard for police to respond. So they basically walked through the tourist throng streets that were impassable to cars, and they got in a waiting speedboat. A speedboat, like something out of James Bond. Or maybe the Italian job. It's brazen and very well thought through at the same time. If they just went in looking like a couple of normal people like me and they left, then would we be talking about them? These early heists show how Pink Panthers develop a signature style, the one that reflects a deliberate use of drama and misdirection. They have made a tactical decision to draw attention to themselves. It's kind of an interesting thing if you think about it, the idea of having flashy when you want attention and switching to nondescript when you need to. Everything is thought through quite brilliantly. It's, it's almost like a magician. The magician wants you looking somewhere, and they don't want you looking somewhere else. And they have given so much thought to what is going to grab your attention and what is going to not. And in this case, the you is all of the different witnesses who are likely going to end up speaking to authorities. So to me, it, it, it just gets at something really well-crafted. Crazy costumes, expensive cars, speedboats, all of it designed to distract onlookers from the actual crime. They want the wow factor. And so I think, strangely, by being extremely visible, by dressing up, these big strong men dressing up as women, by doing all of these things that we associate with Pink Panther films, with James Bond films, with countless heist films, I think it actually makes it very, very hard to catch them because it's not just someone walking in with a gun saying this is a robbery and then running away or jumping in a car. It's something so much less probable than that that authorities would have a very hard time predicting every one of these wild and crazy crimes that they seem to have committed. Captain Hervé Conan of the Paris police says these early years were a kind of golden age for the Panthers. Between 2000 and 2007, they had a a fantastic opportunity to rob everywhere in the world because you were able to travel with false passport or forged passport. It was easy, you had no DNA, the CCTV was very bad and sometimes did not exist, and Montenegro and Serbia, there were a lot of corruption in these countries, so they know that as soon as they were in that country, they were not in danger. 
So they had 10 years, it was open bar. They were able to do everything they want in the world. An open bar everywhere in the world. And though there was no way to predict where the Pink Panthers would strike next, their targets all shared a specific profile. Anywhere the rich and famous gathered and shopped. They hit London, Paris and Liechtenstein, Monaco and ski resorts in the French Alps. And as their ambitions grew, so did the distance the Panthers were willing to travel. Uh, one of the guys we arrested, uh, we had wiretape on him and we understood that he traveled in Japan. <laughs> and after that, we found Peter where uh, he's in Japan with his girlfriend. So he was going there to check if he was able to make a robbery. They were traveling everywhere in the world and two major robberies were committed in Tokyo by them. Uh, two major robberies. So the Pink Panther thing is kind of legendary in Japan because it was one of the first international jewel heists ever in the country. Jake Adelstein is an investigative journalist who has been covering crime in Japan for 30 years. He literally wrote the book on it. His memoir, Tokyo Vice, became a major TV series. He remembers one of these Panther heists. So, first of all, the crime took place in Ginza, which is one of the most expensive places in Tokyo even now. It's loaded with these high-end shops like Louis Vuitton shops and Chanel shops and Bulgari and these luxury brands that are high-end and that Japanese people of certain wealth really love. And so it's also a place where you have very expensive high-end jewelry. It's May 2007, just two months after the heist at the Wafi Mall. Two Panthers arrive at Tokyo's Narita Airport with their sights on a particularly valuable piece of jewelry, a diamond-encrusted tiara. They've given themselves two months to put a plan in place. They study the area carefully and decide to approach the store they've targeted on bicycles towards the end of the workday. The streets will be crowded and they'll easily blend in. It's 5 p.m. on June 14th. First came this guy in a, wearing a suit, and then came another guy in a white mask almost immediately after him. He shot the tear gas in the faces of the clerks. They stole this tiara and a necklace and other things worth about... The tiara itself was worth like $2 million, and then they sold a necklace and other things that were probably worth maybe close to a $1 million. And they did it all in about 32 seconds. 32 seconds. They entered... They broke into it, they stole the stuff, they were out of there within 32 seconds, which is kind of amazing. This kind of thing never happens in Japan. The Tokyo police are totally taken aback. So the Japanese police were kind of baffled by this crime because they came in fast and they left very fast. And this was a time before Japan was covered in closed-circuit TV, so there wasn't great footage of these guys. They didn't leave any fingerprints behind, even though they were not wearing gloves, which really surprised anybody. And all they did was take the merchandise they were aiming for. But since the Wafi Mall heist in Dubai, the Panther brand of robbery had become all too familiar for law enforcement. And the Tokyo police immediately have their suspicions. From the very beginning, they suspected that these might be members of the Pink Panther. They also have one small bit of evidence. The thieves dumped the empty can of tear gas not far from the jewelry store. So they decided to go with the can of tear gas and see what they could find. What they found out that the spray was a mass-market animal repellent which used in France to scare off wild dogs and other animals. This one clue is enough to convince them that the crime is international in nature. And that is enough 
to bring in Interpol. The Japanese police are incredibly good at cooperating with Interpol and working with them, even with the language barrier and making sure that if a crime is perpetrated on Japanese soil and they want to capture the person, they're dedicated and they spend lots of manpower and hours and they will send people overseas to help gather the information to put together the case. With the help of Interpol, Japanese authorities are able to track the serial number on the can to a military surplus store in Marseille, in the south of France. Meanwhile, Tokyo police are able to piece together the timeline of the heist. So what the police were able to put together is that they came in at 5 p.m. In 32 seconds, they had stolen everything that they needed. They hopped on bicycles about 400 meters away. They threw away the tear gas. They dropped the bicycle. They got in a car. They took apart the tiara. They took off all the diamonds, what they couldn't use from the tiara. They flushed on the toilet. Then they headed in the Rita airport and left. There is a possibility that they met with the mistress of an Italian jewelry dealer before they left and made a transaction there, but that's what police were able to put together. The Japanese authorities, together with Interpol, embark on an international manhunt using global intelligence gathering and surveillance. And their diligence pays off. One suspect is caught in 2009 in Cyprus, the other in 2010 in Rome. The jewels themselves were never recovered. But the details of how these pink panthers dismantled the highly recognizable tiara into loose stones points to another hallmark of the pink panther brand. Not only do they know how to steal a $2 million piece of jewelry, they know how to sell it. Now let's talk about what you do if you've come into possession of a large amount of stolen high-end jewelry. Scott Selby is the author of Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History. He's a leading expert on the black market diamond trade. The Pink Panthers, they like to hit high-end shops, high-end jewelry. These are things that are already polished, that are already ready to be sold. They've been cut in such a way to really have the highest value, to look the most beautiful. There's a lot of things that then come into play with how you, you fence those, depending upon exactly what you stole and what kind of value you're expecting to get back from it. The Panthers intentionally target the most expensive jewelry from the most famous stores, but these are not the easiest items to turn into quick cash. Generally, they've stolen from high-end name brand jewelry stores. And so with those, you're going to be facing some decisions pretty quickly, right? Because having a brand name associated with a jewelry, as well as the intricate design of that jewelry, gives it a high percentage of the value. Here's the problem is if it's something recognizable, if it's something that costs $50 million from some famous jeweler, everybody in the business will know what it is and anybody else would just Google it, right? So then what you would probably do is you would unfortunately have to lose the craftsmanship of the jewelry as well as the value of the brand by removing the individual stones from it and melting down the gold. If you sell something to a fence, particularly things that are harder to sell on, the rule of thumb that's been used for a long time is 10 cents on the dollar. 
right? So now imagine that Tiffany's diamond, you've now removed the polished diamond from the engagement ring and you've melted the ring down for its silver value, which is tremendously less than, you know, it being a, a finished product. But let's be honest. When what you've stolen is worth tens of millions of dollars, you can probably afford some markdowns. And what about really big stones? It's going to depend. Like, let's say you have a big necklace with the Pink Panthers. Sometimes they've stolen something where there's a primary stone that's large, famous enough, maybe even to be named. It's going to be something really special and anybody in the world in the business would recognize it. Something, for example, like the 125-carat diamond necklace known as a Comtesse de Vendôme. The Panthers stole that in 2004. It was worth an estimated $31.5 million. So that one, let's put on the side. It's really hard to move. But there's going to be a lot of accompanying stones with it. And a lot of these will be relatively generic. So those should be pretty easy to move. They're probably going to be flawless, one carat, maybe two carat um, white diamonds. The first thing you're going to want to do is look on, it's called the girdle. And what that basically is, is if you have your gemstone lying flat, so you have a profile view, it's going to be the widest part. It's the part that divides the top and the bottom of the diamond. And it's become common over the years for there to be a laser inscription there. Then what you have to do is you have to see if there's the equivalent of a serial number or a certification number or something there. A certification that could identify the jam and tell you exactly where it came from. So that's the first thing they're going to look for is are there numbers on the side? And if there are, that's a problem because anybody anywhere along the process could look it up, right? You could very easily polish those off, but you need somebody that's in the business that polishes diamonds. So that's something where you're going to need a corrupt individual to work with. Finding a corrupt individual in this shadowy world Scott Selby's talking about doesn't sound difficult. I mean, this is where the Pink Panthers live. On CNN, Anderson Cooper talked to filmmaker Havana Marking, who made a documentary about the Panthers, about the group's extensive support network. Diamonds are the, the key thing that they are most professional at and do the best at, mainly because they've got incredible connections to sort of diamond centers like Antwerp, mm-hmm. um, which is a huge European center of diamond trading. I was lucky enough to meet a contact of the Panthers um, called Mr. Green, who is a fence. And he's the person who they take the diamonds to. He gets them recut. He creates completely new sort of certificates of origin for them and is able to, he has the connections to then sell them back into the, uh, the clean market. So once you get something into the legitimate stream of commerce, you've got it made because one diamond could change hands eight times in a week in Antwerp, Belgium. Scott Selby, again. But the problem is, is people there will remember certain kinds of stones. These are people who really care about what they're doing and there's an artistic element to it. And these are um, communities where people know each other and have heard of things. So you can't just introduce basically the big pendant stone from some necklace he stole in Japan. You can't just introduce that on the other side of the world and, and nobody has any questions, right? Right. These rare stones might be the most valuable, but they're also the hardest to fence without bringing a lot of unwanted attention. Still, when you have the right connections, you have options. One choice is is you could sell it on so the buyer knows it's stolen and they're comfortable with that. And traditionally, there's a market for very high-end stones in Hong Kong and Dubai where people might not ask so many questions, right? So you could have people who are willing to buy something like that 
So that's one option. Okay, but what if we're dealing with a stone that is a little too famous? Something that's sort of unfortunate, but sometimes needs to be done, is if you have something truly unusual, you may find yourself forced to cut it into smaller pieces. If you show up with a thousand of these stones, the first person to buy it's going to know that it's stolen and there'll be a big discount involved, right? But the person they sell it on to will have no idea. And the person after them, and the person after them, and these stones move fast, fast, fast. In Antwerp, they all go through Antwerp, Belgium for the most part. And the next thing you know, it'll be in your local strip mall and then an engagement ring and you yourself could be wearing an engagement ring with a stone that was stolen and nobody would know. Given how complicated it is to move stolen diamonds and the criminal network required to do it, you have to wonder about the economics. Is stealing diamonds actually a good business? My colleague, Ilan Greenberg, spoke to Don Palmieri, a master gemologist appraiser at Gem Certification and Assurance Lab in New York. We are graders and certifiers of diamonds and gemstones, and uh, we do a great deal of work for the law enforcement and insurance uh, industries. I've been involved in so many of these cases afterwards when they begin to recover some of the jewelry, and especially things like uh, big diamonds that have been recut and then tried to remarket through the legitimate marketplace. Sadly, there's always a market for hot diamonds and jewels of great value. And very sadly, it's tied right back to our industry. So you have to understand that these are stones that travel around the entire globe. They go from one major auction to another. They go from the hands of wealthy people in Asia, Europe, the United States, South America. Uh, once it's compromised or degraded, right, how do they recoup that original value? How do you inflate it. I understand how you decrease it, but how do you increase it again? By getting a legitimate grading report on the previously stolen stone. And the way to do that is to in some way disguise it. The only real way to disguise it would be either to damage it where you're creating flaws in the stone or you recut it. But if you recut it enough, you can remove other telltale identifying marks then the laboratory just grades it. They're grading tens of millions of diamonds every year, and I think some things have slipped through the cracks. So when someone pulls off a heist, right, and steals millions of dollars worth of, let's say, diamonds or other gemstones, it seems like then they fence it for pennies on the dollar. Why don't they knock off a liquor store? Like, it seems like for all that effort and all that, you know, it looks glamorous, but they're, they're getting pennies on the, you know, why not an ATM? You know, it doesn't seem like the, the margin is there. Oh, it is. <laughs> Let me explain how. First of all, the average bank robbery, they only get, what, a few thousand dollars anymore? Three, four, five thousand dollars? But if you, uh, gee, I don't want to encourage your audience to think about this as the uh, next great thing to do. But we're talking about small items with one of the greatest stores of inherent value. So if you've got a 10-carat D flawless diamond, you know, basically you're talking about a, a, a million-dollar stone. Let's say you only get $200,000 for it. What liquor store do you know has $200,000? Think about any other thing of great value, a bar of gold. I mean, a bar of gold, let's say it's 10 ounces. You know, today's money, uh, what's it worth? Um, $16,000. 
and try running down the street with a 10 ounce bar of gold in your pocket. But with gems, it's a whole lot easier. It's very compact, great storehouse of value. Diamonds were always a high priority target for the Panthers, but they also had a soft spot for high-end watches. Paul Thorpe is a retired watch dealer with 40 years of experience in the business. And now spending my time as a full-time YouTuber and enjoying every minute of it, mainly focused on anti-watch crime. Paul fell under the spell of watches early. My dad was a big watch guy. I remember falling in love with a Timex on a, another boy's wrist at school when I was five years old. And uh, that was it. I was bitten by the bug. I caught watch disease. I've taken every known medication a man to cure it, but it's never worked. Paul's love of watches gives him an insider's understanding of their appeal to thieves. I think the big thing is with watches, and you've also mentioned diamonds here, is the fact that they are easily transportable. They are obviously valuable and therefore a great desirable asset for the criminals because you can't get on a plane with a million dollars in cash. Someone is going to stop and ask you questions. But you can fit a million dollars worth of diamonds in your pocket or a million dollar watch and no one is going to bat an eyelid. They retain a huge part of their original value even when they're stolen. And that value has only grown over time. In the black market pre-2000, I mean, back then, the value of a Rolex watch on the black market would have been about a third of its retail value. Um, so still a decent return if you've got enough of them. Um, today, by comparison, that same watch on the black market is worth between 80 and 100% of its retail value. And in some cases, 200% of its retail value, despite the fact that it's stolen. Particularly since around about, I would say, 2017, the luxury watch market has exploded right across the world. And certainly in London now, I mean, if you throw a stone in the air, it's probably going to land and fall on a luxury watch. They're easy to transport. And that's why I believe the watch black market has, in many instances, taken over from drugs. And I'm told that the value of luxury watches has risen a lot faster than the value of illegal drugs on the street. So a lot of these gangs have been taking their money out of drugs and putting it into luxury watches. From drugs to watches, is it really such a better business? Look, it's risk versus reward for these criminals. If they're caught with a kilo of Class A drugs, they're going to go to prison. In the UK, you're looking at, say, between 10 and 12 years. If you steal a luxury watch, you're probably going to be out in 18 months. And if you look at the risk versus the reward, if you steal three Richard Mills and a dozen Rolex in a 12-month period, that's going to net you somewhere in a region of £1.5 million in cash or however you take payment. With those kind of returns, it's no wonder that watches grew in popularity with the criminal class. And like other jewellery stores, watch dealers have had to adapt. Pre-2010, we were pretty regular, you know, no real more security than anyone else at any other jewellery store. There were times when we'd even leave our door open, but it got to the stage where we would need... Well, I'll give you an example. At my last shop, um, which was fairly small, I think we spent £75,000 on security, smoke cloaks. Uh, smoke cloak is, is just a simple box. You hit a button and it fills the room with smoke so that people can't see where they're going. I had laser beam alarms around my property at home. Um, another 50 
£60,000 for security, still front doors, windows that were unbreakable. But with the increased security at watch dealers, the stores themselves have become less attractive for thieves. Now they've taken to targeting individuals instead. These people are going to the smarter areas where the high-end boutiques are and the fashionable, swanky restaurants are to find their victims. And they, they find them in the street. They can have spotters inside, working inside the restaurant, a waiter or a waitress. It's very simple. They serve a customer. They see they're wearing a 100-gram watch. They WhatsApp their friends outside. And then when he leaves, they'll follow him and then they'll strike. But these guys are very well educated. They know the job. They're professionals. Been a victim of robbery myself on three occasions, and they're actually very, very good at what they do. The Panthers focus on these enormously expensive items, like diamond tiaras and million-dollar watches. Makes obvious sense for a thief. Their targets, Graf and other elite brands, make sense too since these are places best stocked with what they're after. But for this gang of Serbian criminals, the choices they've made about what to steal and who to steal from might be coming from a more personal place. Coming up next on Infamous International, the Pink Panthers story. The previous decade of sanctions imposed on Serbia totally criminalizes the economy. Smuggling becomes a huge part of the economy. And that really starts in the 90s and has never changed in Serbia. A decade of sanctions and civil war leaves the country in shambles. There was a resentment built to the West with its riches and wealth and flashy lifestyle. And a generation who see crime as the best career. As soon as he turned uh, 18, he started doing little robberies. And uh, when the manager of that shop, when he saw a group of uh, Serbian students coming in, he called security immediately because they knew about Milan Jepoja. That's next time on Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story. Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story, was produced by Best Case Studios in association with Coda Story. Hosted by me, Natalia Antalava, and written by Katrina Wolf, Adam Pinkis, Suzanne Myers, and David Markowitz, with help from Brent Katz and Matt Levin. For Best Case Studios, executive producer, Adam Pinkis. Senior producer, David Markowitz. Producer, Katrina Wolf. Associate producer, Hannah Leibovitz-Lockhart. And consulting producers, Julie Goldstein and Louis Spiegler. For Coda Story, reporting by Alan Greenberg, with associate producer, Rebecca Robinson. Edited and sound designed by Galen Mullins and Max Michael Miller. Music by Dave Harrington. Archival producers, Magda Gora and Paul Dallas. This has been an Exactly Right production. Executive producers Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hartstark, and Daniel Kramer, with consulting producer Kyle Ryan.